Hello, everybody. Welcome to Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. This is episode 78, the top five Americana movies. Uh, Frank, uh, this list, you, we, we've talked about this on the podcast. Never mind. This isn't new. Um, but you remember this list is actually like a year old now. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. It feels like more than a year. Well, it's close to a year. It was August of last year. Um, okay. Like first week of August of last year. So it's close to a year. Yeah, I know um, we were on your porch maybe after the bar, and I said that I wanted to do this list. Uh, nope. Um, this was – actually, maybe it was like a year ago almost exactly. It's when me and Brandy went to um, the Poconos last year, last summer. And I was – you would text me something about watching a movie about something, and it's like – like is it? A, I can't remember what it was, but it was like something about like um, you said something about Mar- Americana, and I was like, "What's what's the top five Americana movies?" Like I texted you back like immediately, and you like texted me back within like a minute with a list. Was it this list? It was this list minus mi- minus one movie, right? Minus Ice Storm, which you right. had to replace because we ended up talking about Ice Storm in January. And I um, confused Stardust Memories with one of the other movies on this list because yes, it had been right. so long since I've seen them. I got the names mixed up. Right. And I watched Stardust Memories um, on top of this list. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. So, this list is a year in the making. Um, and it's a good list. I, I, I enjoyed everything to one degree or another. Um, right. Yeah. Some more numbers, obviously, but I enjoyed everything on the list. Um, so, do you want to go ahead, maybe before you get into the movies that could have made the list, and kind of define what you're thinking of? Because I certainly see a theme here, but what you're thinking of when you say Americana? Yeah, so to me, Americana is the like it encompasses a feeling of backwards looking into a time that's kind of like the world has moved on from like a post-technology I mean sort of like a more like backwards like idealized time that a lot of like directors I think especially from the 70s and 80s were very fond of looking back on because to them that was their you know their childhood or whatever um I usually like that I think of Americana kind of as stretching from like maybe the mid to late 20s through like the late 70s so sort of before like basically i think before like our like formative years but definitely before like the revolution of video games and vhs and you know like definitely before like cell phones and the internet like it's a time when like they're like a newspaper was an important like communication tool and communities were smaller and a time that like people tend to like you know, fairly or unfairly, whatever, like hold on a pedestal in their minds, especially like the generation previous to us, I think. Sure. Um, so to me, like the latest a movie could be that would still have a feeling of Americana. And there's one movie that I almost put on this list that doesn't meet this requirement, but I would say like maybe like the mid seventies, maybe the late seventies, like 77, like definitely like pre, I don't know. Pre-1980s, I guess. Right. And it doesn't even have to be, like, a rosy glow, like, look at it. It just has to, like, in some ways embrace the idea of that being a time 
you know, maybe where men were men or where, you know what I mean? Like there's this, always like something there. Let me ask you this. This isn't a movie, but do you think being said in the early eighties that freaks and geeks has those elements to it? Yeah. I think freaks and geeks is actually like, and it might be the latest you can go. No, I don't. So I don't even think of that as Americana. I think of that as like post Americana mm. because it still is more about like, this general like the previous generations were all like generally the same you know it was you got a job you got married you stayed generally like where you were i mean not you know obviously like there's exceptions to that but for the most part it was like people lived in their small towns you know for their whole lives and they knew the same people which i think like um shit sam sam's parents sort of like exemplify like these you know he owns the local sporting goods store she's a homemaker you know they have two kids a boy and a girl they've lived in the town their whole lives whereas then like um Lindsay what yeah Lindsay is more of like the person that's going to break out of that the person that's willing to travel and you know the um the rest of like her gang of friends are all people that don't really subscribe to the I need to get married I need to have a family you know I need to be a productive member of this society and then there's other members that are still like or other people on the show that are still kind of pulled towards that like um, you know I think like Neil is kind of like in the other side of that where he's more of a traditionalist and Millie definitely um, so I think that's more of a show that's about the transition beyond like that age where people aren't tied down by you know heritage and place of like geography like they're more able to like move beyond and like live a different life so. yeah yeah and there there's a couple of movies and uh, there's definitely like a, some <laughs> subtopic the involving this idea of americana of getting out yeah and um it, it appears in a couple of different ways in a couple of these movies that are going to be on your list but um yeah there's certainly this idea especially in small town i think there's always this idea of escaping um, right. of getting away um you definitely see it less in the i think city movies um but i think there's still a type of escape that's going on even when you're dealing with these kind of city environments and stuff like that it's just it's just maybe more mental or psychological sure. maybe <clears throat> but yeah it's it's an interesting like thing um the other thing that i think we'll have to talk about a lot i'm seeing is uh coming of age right um go almost seems to go hand in hand yeah, I think, again, I think that's because the people that are making these movies, um, with the exception of uh, um, the, the number two movie on the list, are directors that are American and were born during that time or, like, came of age during that time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the whole, like, idea is that's why it's so idealized because they were, you know, young, like, then. Like, that's when they were growing up, and that's, like, how they, like, look back fondly upon their, you know, their salad days or whatever you want to call it so sure and even that number two movie still has even though it's not american still has elements of that in terms of i think like being nostalgic about like childhood and stuff like that like yeah definitely so well it's also that's that's one that's inspired by um by an american novel sure sure. um yeah so it's more of a faithful adaptation of you know like that right so what, yeah. what did you, what did you what did you almost include and you didn't? So 
I really want I after the initial list I sent you, I really thought hard about including Greece in it mm-hmm. because I think Greece is a really. I mean, like I I love Greece as a musical. I think it's a really strong example of um. Like sort of what I just talked about with freaks and geeks, like an embracing of like the feel of like the fifties, but also like that. I mean, obviously they don't make it like quite quote unquote dark, but you know, like it, not everything was perfect back then. Like there was, you know, different expectations for women and misogyny and sex, like sexism and um, I don't know, just like all the different like small things that Greece kind of like as a musical that was made after that time period, but reflecting back on the fifties. Um, yeah, Greece is one. I'm surprised about Greece, honestly, um, because you've been threatening with me with that movie for um, like a, close to probably the entirety of the podcast at this point. Yeah, um, threatening is a weird way to put it because Greece. <laughs> I know. I'm. It's it's a joke, but um, I don't I don't hold it as high esteem as you do, but I still think Greece is good. Um, it just didn't like it didn't feel right to put it in this list because it's so. Not not that all these movies are tonally similar, but I think they share more similarities than what Greece would have like, you know. It's a, it's a different conversation talking about a movie like Greece. Sure. Then I thought about stuff like Diner and Avalon, hmm. um, which are pretty strong like nostalgic movies from that same time period, roughly. Um, I thought about Pleasantville, which is again like a more subversive take on that idea. Um, right. kind of thought about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, but that felt like a little too old and jokey, I guess, maybe. Um, Grapes of Wrath, again, like another movie that I think is fantastic, but I think it's just a little too old in that respect. Um, and the movie that actually almost made the list at the last minute last week, um, with me removing the number five movie from the list was Stand By Me, mm. uh, which I think is like almost a perfect encapsulation of like both sides of that. Yeah. Like, this is what these people grew up to, and this is what they were as children, and sure. the difference between the times. And I think it's a really good look at, like, Americana without being, um, like, maudlin or um, too overly, like, whatever, like, wide-eyed and optimistic, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah. probably if, if, if two movies sh- – if I think two movies should have made the list, I, I would say probably Grease and Stand By Me were the two that I struggled the most with. And then there was another one that I kind of thought about and, like, I just thought of that whole post-Americana thing when you asked about freaks and geeks. Mm-hmm. But I really consider putting Clueless on the list. Hmm. I think Clueless is a really great, like, positive look at, like, American teenagers um, in a way that's not, like, like the teen, like, sex comedies or, like, the John Hughes movies of, like, the 80s. Like, I think it is, has, like, a lot of real, like, even though it's, like, a pretty, like a dark comedy, like, it's got a lot of positivity to it, and it's a fun movie, and it also, being set in the 90s, it sort of takes place before, really, the internet and, like, the real explosion of, like, technology that kind of made the world rank, or, like, expand a whole lot. True. Uh, but to me, that's, that's another movie that I feel like should be on a list someday, but it's not this list. Right. Like, it's just, it's, it's not exactly right for this list. Yeah. Now, Stand By Me, that's a movie, as much as I loved it as a kid, I probably saw that movie at least, like, 40 times, probably, in my, like, I don't know, between the ages of, like, 7 and, like, 11. Um, And uh, I haven't seen it since then. So I'd be really interested in watching that at some point. Yeah, I probably haven't watched Stand By Me in, like, over 20 years, I would say. 
Um, I, I also thought like stuff like the Sandlot, you know, like there's other things that are really popular that sure. sort of have that feel of like that era. But to me, the Sandlot's too much of a meme in a lot of ways. Like there's, I don't know what you would discuss about that because most of it's, because it was so popular among our generation when we were like in our pre-teens and early teens, like it's just, I don't know. I only considered that for like 10 seconds. I was like, nah, I don't want to talk about that movie. Although right. I like but it's just, I don't think, I don't know what you discussed there. So. Sandlot's one of those weird movies being in, pretty sure 1993. Um, it's one of those weird movies that's kind of like the, it's like the last, it's like those like last couple games, like those last like, you know, 20 games that came out the last year Nintendo was, um, um, was making games kind of like before like the SNES came out or, you know, the Genesis or something like um, where it's like, they kind of get forgotten at times. Um, the Sandlot kind of comes at like the, at the, just the year before cinema changes with Pulp Fiction. Yeah. I mean, I saw the Sandlot because of my younger brother, right? like right. something that I would have traditionally had any interest in because at that point I was too pretentious to really care about like, some preteen comedy, but um, I mean, I like the Sandlot well enough. But yeah, that's, that's that's a good analogy. Although it's not forgotten by a lot of people, because there's a lot of people that are super into the Sandlot still. Yeah, I, I don't, and it's probably not a per, absolutely perfect analogy. Um, but yeah, there's a sense of like it's like uh, I watched the Sandlot on video, I know, so I probably would have seen it at some point in 1994, and then it's like six months later or less, I'm watching. Pulp Fiction and something like The Sandlot is so trivial, right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything anymore. <clears throat> I mean, that's how I felt about it then, but now, like, I can enjoy Sandlot just as much as I can enjoy Pulp Fiction. Hmm. Maybe I respect Pulp Fiction. I mean, definitely respect Pulp Fiction more, but I still see like the importance and the place of The Sandlot as like, sure. A film. Hmm. I guess yeah. I don't disagree with that. Right. Uh, okay, yeah, stand by me. Okay. You ready to get started then? Yeah, we good. All right. Um, so number five on your list is 1987's Radio Days, directed by Woody Allen, starring Woody Allen. No, actually, he doesn't have a role in this, does he? He's the narrator. Yeah, he is. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it stars Mia Farrow, very young Seth Green, Michael Tucker, Julie Kavner. Has a 90% from critics, 84% from audiences. Um, and Tell us a little bit about this movie and what you like about it. Um, so Radio Days is a, um, basically like a trip through Woody Allen's like nostalgic mind, but under the guise of a narrator um, named Joe, um, talking about the importance of radio in the lives of you know him as a child, but also in, a, in of America in general in the 30s and 40s. Um, basically, like pre World War Two, um, or not really pre World War Two, but like the early days of American involvement in World War Two, um, where there wasn't television, people got their news, their entertainment, their music, like all of it from gathering around like the glow of the radio, um, and just sort of like, like sort of like a softened look at like the lives of people that were stars of the radio, and you know, were people that were kind of formative, and you know, Woody Allen you know, through this proxy of, like, Joe, the narrator, um, who's a character in the movie, that's the Seth Green character, is Joe, um, you know, like, help them grow up and help them find, like, wonder and adventure and 
kind of like a sense of purpose. Um, it's really just like a love letter to honestly something that I don't understand directly because like I've never been a fan of radio programs necessarily. Mm-hmm. Like I, but I don't necessarily care to listen to the radio much, um, especially not like serials or whatever. Um, but the way that he presents it, it's very warm. It's very, you know, like golden glow nostalgia, basically. And it kind of makes you feel like some nostalgia for it, even if you don't have any real personal connection to it, um, which I think is a really powerful, um, powerful tool that he uses like cinema for to give you that. Um, he's got some really great performances um, and his narration is really good. I think um, despite the fact that like, I, so this is the first time we've ever talked about a Woody Allen movie as being on the list, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I um, believe so. We've I, talked um, about why we haven't before, but right. I don't think we ever talked about a Woody Allen movie. So this was the easiest one for me to do because I don't have to see him, basically. Right. Like, right. not having him directly in front of me as a character, you know, creepily obsessing over some, like, young lady or whatever. Um, it made it palatable, I guess, more. Right. And I... I loved this movie as a teenager. Like, this was, I mean, I've probably seen, like, five or six Woody Allen movies before I saw this movie, but this was definitely my favorite Woody Allen movie for most of my life, and I still think it's, from a nostalgia perspective, my favorite, Um, even though, like, I recognize technically it's not his best movie or anything. Um, I still really enjoy it, and I think it's, um, I think it holds up pretty well. Um, It's number five because I don't know that it really does anything beyond just be a really good like love letter to something you know what I mean and I think that's like important that it can do that and there's not to say that there's not other movies that are like that that are good but you look at like I said this to you off air but you look at um another movie we've talked about in the past which is Fellini's Amar Court which is kind of the same thing you know it's this look back of a director through his childhood through the lens of the town that he lived in, right? And the people in the town. And it addresses things like gender politics and fascism and religion and societal roles based on wealth. You know what I mean? Like there's so many things that a Mark Ward touches upon and does it gently and favorably, but still is like more impactful than what I think Woody Allen is doing here, which again is just really like a very pointed precious look at something that he found to be important in his life so right. yeah and and i think that the like you i think you said all fair that it's like he's a, like kind of like a, a lesser director than Fellini, and um i think that aspect of him that is lesser in this case of comparing these two movies probably is that i think i think the radio days has the stories aren't as tight and clean as for right. me. And sure. I think that I lose track of these minor stories and they don't have as much import, obviously, I think, as the stories did um, in Fellini's movie. And um, I know that um, Paul Adnasio, who I typically hate, um, says that he thought that the the stories of the family and the other characters and the radio weren't woven together very well um, as part of his criticism. And while that might seem minor, I think it, there is something to it in the sense that um, 
none of it's woven together very well. Like it all yeah. is just these like little chunks, but like at least in a Marcord, like the, uh, the, the chunk, like the, even though it's like kind of these chunks, the chunks still tell a story throughout the entire movie. And this doesn't at all. It just feels right. kind of flat by the end. <clears throat> I think a little bit like it is, it's, it's more or less, it's like, instead of what, like a whole cloth, like narrative, you're like, in a scrapbook, right? Yeah. Like, does that make sense? No, that's a, that's a good idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's really beautiful like pictures mm -hmm. and there's really like effective scenes. Like I like, like the Wallace Shawn stuff, I think is really good. I think the Mia Farrow stuff is really good. I like Seth Green as like the kid. Yeah. The funny, you know, what are they doing? Like looking for Nazis or something, and they see like the substitute like getting dressed or whatever. I mean, there's like these small things that are good in themselves, but it's just like you're seeing like pictures of a whole. So, and sometimes I like that in movies. Like I don't mind like anthology style movies that don't necessarily weave together, but, um, like I agree with that, and I was like I was I was thinking about a Marcord the whole time I was watching it because I watched those movies like initially as a child like pretty close together, so mm -hmm. they've always sort of like connected in my mind, um, and I kind of felt the same way, you know, like just that this is it's almost there, but it doesn't quite have the same like whatever, but it's still a good movie and it's entertaining and I think it's it's worth watching. Like it's a solid solid film that I think most people you know would enjoy at least. Although I think it's losing some of its like relevance, like by every year that passes, because obviously, you know, who's listening to the rate? I, I guess people do do that. I don't know. Maybe it's not. Right. Or, it's 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 funny though that you like the the scrapbook idea because it's like you mistakenly a year ago said Stardust Memories, and it makes perfect sense of why you made that mistake though. Like um, having rewatched it now, Radio Days now. Because that's all this is. It's just like a series of memories, like you said, like a right. scrapbook. Which, for whatever reason, in my head, like that's why I've always thought that's what this was called. Yeah, and it's like a, it's like these like ethereal, like like, like ethereal, like memories or whatever. Like, um, like so, yeah, like Stardust Memories makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, um, yeah, the, the, yeah, there, there's stuff that I think is good in this movie, but it just doesn't connect. That's you know. Yeah. Good music, though. Um, you were asking about like people listen to the radio. I do know a a couple older people that still listen to old radio stuff. Like they right. like download it off the internet now and like listen to like old radio stuff like from like this time period. Um, because I grew up around or around this time. Yeah my my grandma used to have um would buy those like time life like tape collections mm -hmm. like the best of red skeleton or like frankie right. valley radio show you know what i mean like mm -hmm. she always those collections of like the golden age of radio hits and you see them all the time like when you go to cracker barrel like cracker barrel um in their country store always has that stuff but i think that like as generations go by i think that that fades a little bit um although people listen like we're doing a podcast so what are we doing basically doing the same thing right and that's what i always found fascinating i've tried to go back as much as i like detective stuff and like listen to those old radio programs and i have listened to most of the harry lime episodes um yeah. but i have a real hard time listening to those old radio programs even about stuff i should 
even if I do kind of really like the content, I have a hard time listening to it, but I can just listen to a podcast and it's no big deal. But going back and listening to those things is extremely difficult. Um, I don't, I don't understand what the difference is. Like, I mean, I'm somebody who's like an auditory verbal learner primarily. It's like I shouldn't have a hard time listening. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, we were just talking before we got on the podcast about um, the Doctor Who serials. And like, right. I really enjoy, especially those early seasons of like the Doctor Who reboot. But I've tried to listen to those serials and I just have no interest in it. Yeah. Like, it always seems so phony and goofy, you know? <laughs> Pardon me. So anyway, yeah, radio news. Um, okay. What did you with me the other week about something small, and you said, did you did I want you to put Biloxi Blues on there? What do you think of Biloxi Blues? Biloxi Blues is fine. Yeah, I liked that when um, I was a kid. I mean, I probably haven't seen it right since I was like 13 years old, but yeah. Matthew Broderick, right? Yep. Isn't that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's fine. It's a good movie. Yeah, that probably also is something that, like, if I had more nostalgia for it, like I could have considered for the list, and probably like a movie that would be in a position like this, like a, like that number five nostalgia pick. Um, but I don't, I don't really. I was just being a dick. Okay, so number four on your list is the 1973 George Lucas film American Graffiti. Stars Richard Dreyfuss, Ron Howard, Paul Lamont, Cindy Williams, Harrison Ford. Has a 96% from critics and an 84% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. Want to tell us a little bit about American Graffiti and why you put it on the list? Weird that 84. I mean, I know 84 is high, but I I can't imagine meeting somebody that would dislike this movie. You know what I mean? I can. Like an audience member, yeah. I oh, can. do you did did you dislike it? No. Look, I think... But I can imagine someone disliking it. There's elements, I think, that are I dislike. I mean, really? or I, that, not that I dislike, that I don't find interesting or exciting. I don't think... Yeah, there's nothing about this movie that I don't find... I mean, it's not like like blowing me away or like thrilling, but I, I find the whole movie to be genuinely like charming and, you know, somewhat interesting. So anyway... I think it lacks humor is, primarily, but... <clears throat> this is the most... Um, quote-unquote like Americana movie on this list like this was the first movie I thought of when you asked me to do the Americana list Mm -hmm. um this in radio days although Stardust Memories whatever um basically follows a night um with a group of teenage friends in Modesto California the night before two members of the group um Ron Howard and um uh Dreyfus Richard Dreyfus character are preparing to leave to go east to go to college in the early 60s, right? Like 62, I think, is when it takes early, place. It's early, yeah, early 60s. I actually wrote um, down the years they all take place, so yeah. So the Ron Howard character is firmly committed to leaving town and going to college, wants to get away from, you know, the small hick town that he, he feels like he lives in. Richard Dreyfuss's character has, like, a scholarship from the Moose Lodge, but is unconvinced that it's the right decision, that he doesn't want to leave his friends and stuff. Um, they have some other friends that they hang around with, along with, like, um, Ron Howard's girlfriend, who's the head cheerleader, and they're in love and have been together for a while. And um, one of their best friends, who's been graduated from high school for, I guess, like, over a year, um, but is the local drag racing king of, like, this, the town. Um, he has this fancy uh, car, and it's just basically following like, and 
um, the Toad, who's like their nerdy friend that kind of gets picked on by everybody. Um, and it just follows the group of them on their various adventures, uh, you know, throughout the night leading up to the last day before these two guys are supposed to go to school. And that's it, really. I mean, like, there's some... It all kind of follows... I don't know what I consider like that. This is like the archetypical, like golden days of my childhood thing. When you talk to like baby boomers that you hear about, you know, like sure people like in the town, like all knew each other and, you know, they trusted each other and you know, people were like mostly like wholesome, even though they were doing some kind of, you know, like things that you consider like teenagers do like whatever, like making out or trying to have sex or, trying to get alcohol right. and try like so they can get drunk or the yeah. drag racing element like all of it's like relatively harmless and there's no real nobody locked their doors right right no real danger to anything um except for the very end when you know harrison ford who plays um a guy in another souped up hot rod who's looking for um uh shit uh, milner who's the is that lamat right is that that actor yeah name? Mm-hmm. um paul lamat right yep um, Paul Amat's character, Milner, who's the drag race king, like Harrison Ford's character is trying to find him all night so they can drag race. And again, it's like, it's another thing where it's, here's this sweet, wholesome, but also kind of tongue in cheek look at like the halcyon days of your youth before you like became an adult and then kind of ending on this like dark note where, you know, the drag race king, like was losing and his rival like almost died. And that's the only thing that, you know, sort of saves his reputation. And the guy who was going to go away decides to stay because he's in love with his girlfriend. And the guy that was going to say decides that he's kind of outgrown, like what this town is and he wants to leave and go pursue, um, you know, whatever college. And then has this coda, which is like, one of the, like the most fucking depressing thing in the movie, which is, you know, the Milner died in a head-on collision with a drunk driver, and the nerdy kid, Terry, was, like, reported missing in Vietnam. Vietnam, right? I guess probably. Yes. It just says the name of a location, but, I, like, An- Anlock or something like that, which I assume is Vietnam. Yeah. Um, and the guy that decided to stay home is now, like, an insurance salesman in his hometown, and the guy that decided to go away is now, like, a famous writer living in Canada, and I don't know. I mean, it's it's Lucas, so it's it's pretty competently directed. Um, there's not a whole lot of like real technical like wonderment, I guess, to this movie. I mean, it's pretty really just competently shot. It's got it's got a fantastic soundtrack. Like that was one of the things that I thought was the most interesting because I'd forgotten like how good the soundtrack is. And it's just your early 60s, you know, Buddy Holly, Beach Boys, whatever. Um, but really good. Um, it's got some pretty good dialogue. I I think all the characters are likable for the most part. Um, and I think that it's like, even though it's just, it, it's interconnected, but also like unrelated. It's like, and I love this movie. I know you don't like this movie as much, but <clears throat> it's kind of like um, Dazed and Confused, mm-hmm. like took everything from this movie and tried to make it whatever 15 years later and edgier and i think this movie is just as effective if not more so um than that formula so yeah um 
what do I have to say about this movie? So, so what most the audiences say is that it doesn't is is a, it's weak on plot. Um, that that's that's kind of the consensus of the negative reviews of that you know eighty four percent thing that you were asking yeah. about, and I think that's a common issue with movies like this and i think this movie is extremely important um for a number of different reasons um even if i don't find it as interesting as i might have found it at some other point in my life or it's if i was older or something like that but um i still i think still think this movie is really important because i think it almost sets the stage for every single late teen coming of age movie what, where, where are we going to go after graduation type thing? Like you said, dazed and confused. I think there's, you know, other types of things like more comedies, like super bad, um, license sure. to drive in the eighties. Like, I think it sets the stage for all that kind of stuff as a template that people can mess with. Right. Um, so I, I think in that way, it's extremely important. I think it's extremely important for, as a cultural artifact, I think it's extremely important. Yeah, definitely. And, I think what it is is that I do agree a little bit about that plot. I mean, see, the plots of these movies, like that, this specific type of movie, hinges on the character arc more than the things that happen necessarily. Um, it's like, what's going on with this character? Like, you know, what's their psychological kind of like makeup and like where where are they at and where are they trying to go? And then it's like you have these little subplots that kind of um, happen throughout the movie. And sometimes they connect to like that character arc and sometimes they don't. And I think that, so I think people have to understand the characters in order to understand the plot per se. So I think a lot of people just can't understand the plot (laughs) Um, because they're not, they're not good, good enough viewers to understand the character and like what's going on there. Um, that said, I think I think it, it can tend towards these movies, and I think this one does it sometimes. Where the where those things that happen, um, these just kind of let's just call them like random instances, like these things that happen that don't always connect to the character plot, and that's fine in comedies more than it is in things that are trying to be taken seriously. So that would be my only minor criticism of this: is sometimes there's things that happen where it's like it's just the thing that happens. And I don't necessarily see how it connects overall to the overall character arc. Um, And I think that happens more with Ron Howard than anybody else in this movie. Well, I mean, I think that... I also think Ron Howard's pretty weak in this movie overall. I think that Dreyfus is... Kurt, or whatever his character's name is, is the the proxy for Lucas in this movie. Mm -hmm. And... Ron Howard is just somebody else that maybe to Lucas from like a nostalgic perspective, maybe that's a guy that he looked up to that he found that he had kind of grown past eventually. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Um, I can definitely see that though. You and I talked about the same thing too with Days and Confuso. I mean, like I'm, I'm fine with not everything like connecting to everything. If as long as there's like strong enough characters, which is why I like Dazed and Confused and why like I really like this movie as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually surprised at how much I enjoyed this movie this time. Um, I really thought I would like it. I, I thought I would watch it and be like, oh man, like I can see why I like this movie, but I don't like it as much now. But I, I enjoyed it just as much. I think like I found it to be strong and I don't know. I, d- despite my criticism, I would agree with you, and I would say the same thing. Is I was actually surprised by how much I still. I I, I don't know if I ever would have said I really liked this movie a lot, like when I was younger. 
Um, but I was also younger. And like, I, I, so ultimately though, I liked it more than I thought I would watching it this time. Yeah. <clears throat> this is one of those movies that I, I mean, I used to be like a huge completionist when it came to directors or whatever, you know, and like, I mean, I worshiped George Lucas at one point just because of like, you know, THX and the Star Wars movies and, you know, everything that he did, like, you know, through my childhood, like he was such a large part, like formatively of like what I cared about as a kid. So I felt like I had to watch American Graffiti and was pleasantly surprised by it. You know, like I really enjoyed it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I just, I, I think that, I think there's a danger in making a movie that's the story of a night, you know? Yeah. And like the movies that do it really well, I think can be really effective and really like kind of draw you in and make you feel like you're part, like connected with the people in it. Right. And then there's movies that are just terrible. And like, like, do you have you do you remember 200 cigarettes? Yes. Like same idea, yep. but awful movie, like just falls flat on so many surfaces. And it's because most of the characters are unlikable and you don't care ever in the movie of like knowing what happens to these people basically. It's my argument with Swingers for the most part, even though, like, that's not the story of a night. Like, it's sort of similar in tone. Um, and why, like, I just don't like that movie as much because I never care what's going to happen to those people in that movie. But I care about what happens to these people. And I like, you know, that there's no, like, real huge dramatic arc to it. It's no, like, high stakes right. consequences or whatever. It's mostly just these small situations that a teenager would conflate in their mind to be like you know overwhelming or important and then in reality they're just small things that you go through like in your life so i don't know yeah um it's probably like it's interesting to see lucas direct something so personal and do it so well considering like you know that we just watched the phantom menace for the worst blockbusters and it's like tonally the opposite of this movie in every way where it's just like plastic and empty and fake and this movie's like got so much like warmth and humanity to it so all right well it's because i think this is coming from him and that's lucas after being after aging and trying to i don't know never mind <laughs> like he's trying to i think make what he wants to what he would have wanted to see when he was younger but he's so old now he, i don't think he really understands what that means you know it's an interesting comparison to that and i just thought of this now Think about, like, because I hated The Irishman, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Compare, like, The Irishman to, like, Mean Streets. You know what I mean? Right. Like, Mean Streets is so yeah. lived in and visceral and feels, and, you know, same actors in some circumstances. Like right. both movies. And The Irishman, to me, just feels like a paint-by-numbers, like, yeah. like, I don't know, just, I, I don't know. Like, it's, it's interesting to see directors that have been, like, in the game for so long, like, how they change and you know like sometimes for the worse over the course of their um their career so but anyway i think that if you have the chance to watch american graffiti it's up on hbo right now for you know if you subscribe to max or if you have an hbo like streaming subscription that's free through them um so i don't know i think it's worth watching it's only like what like it's under two hours so it's not like an incredibly long movie or anything yeah it's like pretty much it's pretty close to, it's like an hour 50 two hours something like that but it's worth it yeah it's good I mean, yeah. just the first, just from a film history standpoint, it's it's it, it, it should be watched. Especially in like early performances from people like Ford and Dreyfus and um, yeah. uh, Ron Howard, like in one of his like post OP, you know, like early roles, and 
Which, I mean, it has to be intentionally cast, right? I didn't, I tried to read about it, and it's like I didn't read that specifically anywhere, but that definitely is purposeful, right? Um, if not purposeful, I'm sure that it helped him in the audition process. I, I'm, because it's just, it's, it's, it's like, it's because it's almost kind of the idea of like, what the fuck happens to Opie when he has to leave town? You know, right. or does he leave town? You know, it's almost like in some ways, like kind of trying to tell that story um, with Opie being a compositor, like, you know, like this kind of symbol. Opie, um, o- Opie on the cusp of a Me Too moment in the front of a fucking um, whatever Ford Bel Air or whatever the fuck. I don't know. Right. About. Yeah. Okay. Go together. So I added story, story of a night um, to a possibility of future episodes because I think that's a good idea. <laughs> Okay. Uh, ready to move on? Yeah. Okay. Number three on your list is Slums of Beverly Hills from 1998. It is directed by Tamara Jenkins, stars Natasha Lyonne, Alan Arkin, David Krumholtz, Marissa Tomei, and Kevin Corrigan. Has an 80% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 68% from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about this, this movie and uh, what you like about it so much? Uh, so it's... Mostly follows um, the Natasha Leone character, um, who's a teenage girl in like the mid seventies. Um, lives with her father, um, who's an older man, um, kind of a painted as like a failure and like possible like gambling addict that's sort of like frittered away like every chance and opportunity he's had in life. Um, her older brother, uh, who's a kind of a skeevy smarmy um wannabe actor and her younger brother who's mostly nondescript in the movie and just their nomadic lifestyle of moving from one low rent hotel to another um in the beverly hills area of california um under the guise of her father trying to pursue a better life for her and her uh brothers like better schooling or whatever even though they're eating steak at sizzler and running out on hotel tabs and whatnot um they get mixed up with um her Natasha Leone's um, cousin, uh, Alan Arkin, who plays the father's niece, um, who's the daughter of Alan Arkin's bro- richer, older brother, who he takes money from all the time and um, for 50 plus years, as you learn, has like borrowed money from this man who's successful in order to make ends meet and take care of his family. Um, a lot of coming of age stuff in this. Um, you know, first sexual experience, um, trying alcohol, trying drugs, um, the idea of just trying to like, I don't know, like something that always kind of appeals to me in, in movies, especially from this era, era is the idea of like the marginal, marginalized people, um, like people that kind of live on like the outside of society where they're kind of just moving like outside the periphery of normal society, but still like functioning as like a family unit. Um, you look at stuff like the beginning of say like five easy pieces or whatever, you know, like the way that that movie is like set up where, you know, this guy that's a drunk and like living, like just making ends meet as a, whatever, a oil rig worker. And they're kind of the same way where Arkin is moving basically from like one, one scheme to the other of just trying to get enough money to like support his family and <clears throat> doing like these late night ditches of like, you know, their rent or whatever and trying to hook up with like older women um 
in order to be like a sugar, like have a sugar mom or whatever. Um, Leon is amazing in this movie. Um, like a fantastic performance um, by her. Uh, Arkin is heartbreaking a lot of times um, and infuriating at the same time. It's like a father that has the pretense of doing what's right for his family, but is always kind of making the wrong decision there. But the wrong decision is still has the right heart to it, you know? So it's kind of, kind of hard to fault him, but it's also kind of hard to forgive him at the same time. Um, and really great supporting performances. Like Corrigan is Nata- um, Vivian. That's Natasha Leone's character's like kind of boyfriend. Um, Jessica Walter is Alan Arkin's kind of girlfriend. Um, Marissa Tomei's fantastic performance as the cousin, uh, Rita. Um, Crumholtz is really good. Um, Oregon's really like, good. Yeah. Like, so everybody, like, does a really good job in it. It's just, um, it's just a really good movie. It's got some really sad elements to it and some kind of, like, incredibly cringeworthy moments, especially from the terms of, like, Vivian, who's this pubescent girl that's, like, growing up without, like, a female, like, older female figure to sort of, like, give her direction. Um, but also really hopeful. Like, I think it has, you know, maybe out of all these movies, like the most hopeful ending, you know what I mean? Like the ending where you feel like no matter like how low these people may have to sink, like they're still, as long as they're a family, they still have, um, they still have hope on their side. Like they still have potential, um, and being like intelligent, you feel like she'll, you know, she'll be okay no matter what. So just a really great movie. It was, um, I don't know, just something that we rented in the 90s when it came out. Um, I didn't really know anything about it um, prior to it coming out, just so that the trailer was good. And just really enjoyed it. Like, one of my favorite movies um, of, like, the late 90s. I think it's one of the strongest, like, indie movies of the late 90s. <clears throat> this is, like, this is Fox Searchlights. So this is those, when every studio, like, after Miramax success, tried to develop a you know, quote unquote, like indie branch. Right. Um, and this was Fox's indie branch, but you know, it's a great, great movie. Tomorrow Jenkins does a really good job directing it and really great performances all around. Yeah. I'm assuming probably tomorrow Jenkins, it's either this or the savages, the, uh, Lenny, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman movie from the mid two thousands. This is probably like what she's known best for. I would think. Um, I don't, I don't know that movie. Um, so when I saw this, I looked her up because I was like, man, I don't fucking know anything about Tamara Jenkins. And I realized even after looking her up, I don't know anything about Tamara Jenkins. So. Yeah. I've seen the savages, um, or at least most of it, I think on like probably Showtime or you know, HBO or something back in the day. Um, it probably would count as one of those movies that made me stop watching movies. Um, even though I really liked the, I remember I like liking the performances in the savages, but um it was just too much around that time period but yeah um i i was re- i didn't know this movie i never heard of it um at all um until you put it on this list and uh so i was excited to watch it because i'd never heard it about it once um i i really like natasha leone from her stuff in the past like you know five years or so what i've seen over in them um the rest of the cast I, 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 I is put it out there that I thought she was dead. So, <laughs> right, right, yes. Um, even though you've watched stuff with her um, in the past, I, like... got, I got her confused with Brittany Murphy. That's my fault. Gotcha. Okay, I can see that. I can see that. Um, 
but yeah, and then uh, I'm a I, I don't know why that that guy Kevin Corrigan that plays like the kind of boyfriend. Um, I love that dude. I've always loved that dude. I think the guy's he does he has more depth even inside of like his kind of shtick um, right. than people give it cre- give him credit for. Um, so I've always really liked him a lot. I agree, Tomei is really good in this. Um, and I just like the tone of it. Like, I mean, I I, th- I don't think it's taking itself too seriously, but it still has things to say. And, um, yeah, it was just a solid kind of coming-of-age tale from a slightly unique perspective that you don't see that much of a girl of that age, um, which made some of the things a little uncomfortable, like, to watch, considering how old she's supposed to be. Um, I think the fact that it's said in the 70s made it less uncomfortable to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um it was so uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable to me when I was whatever I was, 20 years old, 21 years old when I first Yeah, I think there's something I think of like this, like before my lifetime where it's like, I just think like, oh yeah, that kind of thing happened then, I guess. I don't know. I kind of forgive it more if it's like older for some reason. Um, but yeah, overall, I, I thought this was... Um, was a really good movie, and you're right. I like that it kind of ended on um, a little bit more of a hopeful note, um, where a lot of these movies uh, do not necessarily. I mean, I fully agree with the um, uh, David Crumholtz thing. Um, it's just, it's one of those things where, like, you know that she's like 14 years old, and you know that he's an adult, and it's just really, it's it's a testament to his skill as an actor that he makes himself somewhat endearing even though he's a two-bit pot dealer and a predatory creep right but he obviously cares about her too so it's yeah. just I, it's, yeah and, and 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 interestingly you have kind of a parallel with paul lamott's character what was his name again milner is that right oh yeah yeah milner um, and you have that parallel with that storyline in american graffiti um which is interesting where i also think that I mean, he's obviously doesn't sleep with her or anything like that, American Graffiti. But I also think that he presents kind of a dumb charm and a, a vulnerability to where you don't feel it's as creepy as it is. Right. Well, he's he's an 18-year-old kid that's kind of has this 14-year-old girl foisted on him. Yeah. And is mostly just like, I mean, he's sort of like big brotherly to her. And then at the end you know, does something nice for her, but like, whatever, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a lot different than Crumholtz like, feeling her up while she orgasms on a dryer, and then like, effing her in a parking lot, so I don't know. Right. right. Spoiler alert, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, to me, this is like, and I know it's around the same time, but this is like Curb Your Enthusiasm Americana in a lot of ways like it's very uncomfortable there's a lot of stuff where you're very you're cringing especially alan arkin who's just i don't know like that archetypical clueless dad type thing where he's just saying things that he thinks no matter how embarrassing they are because he's gonna speak his mind no matter what because he's the father um and like i i i love like my favorite thing in the movie is the dynamic between tomei and um, leon like, I think that they are amazing together. I think that chemistry is, like, just spot on. Like, it's so good, you know, of, like, a sister slash 
best friends slash mother daughter. Like there's a lot of different dynamics that they kind of shift between, you know, throughout the movie. And sometimes that they switch at different points in the movie. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I really love this movie. I loved it when I first saw it. And I was glad that we had a list that we could put it on. This was like the second or third movie I thought when I thought of Americana. So yeah, yeah, it's a good movie. I really liked it. Um, yeah, it's really hard to find like a legit criticism um, of this that wasn't just kind of silly or like kind of uh, prissy. Um, so instead, I I I I wanted to quickly read this review that is maybe one of the worst reviews I've ever read. Um, it's from a guy named Rob Blackwelder, um, writing for Spliced Wire. He says, somewhere inside Slums of Beverly Hills is a great coming-of-age comedy struggling to get out. Its core concept is brazen and cagey, the story of a brash teenage girl whose sudden and generous mammary growth wreaks havoc on her life. But instead of staying focused on the comedic and the social potential of the boob issue, which, it's, which it suddenly occurs has been ripe for the post-feminist parody for quite some time, Slums takes off in a whole different direction after a few embarrassing moments in a department store fitting room. Her rack is regulated to second billing, and the picture unhinges, becoming an almost interesting tale of the girl's oddball family whose used car salesman dad keeps them in a dumpy one-bedroom apartment just outside the 90210 for the sake of a prestigious Addy and good schools. Written and directed by... Feature freshman Tamara Jenkins, it's clear that Slums is semi-autobiographical from the heart that went into creating this film. It takes place in very specifically in 1976, although Jenkins thankfully doesn't play up that fact, and approaches several classic teen dilemmas with a relatively fresh eye. Leone absolutely carries the film with the impeccable Brooklyn transplant accent and attitude, though obviously in her 20s, she taps into her inner teen beautifully, experimenting with a newfound hypnotic power over boys and wearing a wardrobe of cutoffs, knee socks, and baby doll sweaters to go with the mess of curly blonde flopping high on top of her head. Hair high on top of her head. But Leon's splendid efforts are undermined by the scattered focus of the other characters who are well acted but too much of a distraction. Okay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You give me a headache. But the fact that he's, uh, let's see, no, no. Uh, the picture takes place in the summer, so we never uh, even see the reactions of Leon's friends and classmates to her new knockers, a source, a rich source of comedy and conflict left untapped. Another distracting problem, several wholly unnecessary boob shots using the most obvious body doubles I've ever seen. Tomei goes from a B minus to a C cup and back in 10 seconds. It's too bad because Slums is incisive and clever when the story stays on the boobs, which, by the way, are incredibly convincing prosthetics, in part because for the first time in movie history, breasts are a source of humor for reasons that don't always stem from ogling guys. As two separate movies, this might have worked. <laughs> reviewer? What did you say? Is it, is, is it Tobias Fuge? <laughs> Right, it might as well be. Um, right. Yeah, the boobs. Yeah, the, he he just wanted the boobs to be its own story, man. Right. I don't even. I mean, I don't even understand. That's. <laughs> I feel like you wrote that review to try and like troll me and to get angry, but 
Nope. <laughs> nope. That's a real huh. opinion that's on Rotten Tomatoes, like in the critics area. Yeah. What's the name of the website this person writes for? Spliced Wire. I'm going to look that website up when we get off. I want to see. <laughs> Fucking Spliced Wire. Okay. All right. Um, this movie is not free anywhere, but if you are willing to pay two ninety nine or whatever, it's worth watching. So it's on Hulu, actually. Oh, I don't care about any more. Unsubscribe to it. Right. <laughs> right. It's not on. Not not Frank free anymore. It's not Frank free, so it's not free for anyone. Right. <laughs> uh, that's a variation of the Fraser principle. <clears throat> Fraser principle is what I. There's actual real psychological term for that. I, I just always called it the Frazier principle, which is where I was always surprised when I would read Entertainment Weekly and see Frazier was the number one show in America because I had stopped watching it, so I assumed everybody else had to. Right. Um, I had this conversation about a show called Adventure Time the other day that ran for far longer than I thought it did because Frankie and I stopped watching it after. <laughs> right. And I was right. like, "What? That's not true." Yeah. But it was. So yes, this is a good movie and definitely yeah. worth watching. And right for more than bo- more than the boobs, yeah. right? And that that is such a creepy review, man. Isn't like, it? like fifteen minutes in, he's like, "Oh man, it's gonna well, be all he's, about." He's trying to appear as like some kind of woke feminist, except for he's like, um, not right. It's the opposite of that. So <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Let's okay, so number two on your list is Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, it was made in 1984. It stars Robert De Niro, James Woods, Elizabeth McGovern, Treat Williams, Tuesday Weld. It has an 86% from critics and a 93% from audiences. I should say that there was a really poor cut of this film that cut it down to just under two hours and right. some of those critics reviews of that 86 percent were contemporary that saw that american release that initial american release so that is probably a skewed number but. right including eber who gave it like one star i think when it first came out and said it was a mess right and and then went back and retconned to four stars yes upon Right, and Siskel and saw both of them in the same year and called the American cut the worst movie of the year and the uh, the cut pretty much we know now as the best movie of the year. And it's a great movie. Um, it's the third in Leone's uh, Once Upon a Time trilogy, which is Once Upon a Time in the West, um, Duck, You Sucker, and then this movie. Um his last movie he ever made, uh, which, um, and also probably his most technically proficient, I would say. Like, this is, it's not my favorite Leone movie because I love a lot of his other movies, but it's definitely, I think, his best movie in terms of just his mastery as a director <clears throat> and his ability to, like, set scenes and the way he films the actors. I mean, there's a lot of really great stuff happening in this movie. Um, it's a, Uh, Like a fractured timeline look at the life of a group of um, basically like Jewish street urchins in, what would you say, like the mid-19-teens, basically? It's the the early 20s, I believe, um, when I looked it up. It's Prohibition, right, right, right. So it's early 20s into the 30s and then finally in the 60s. Late late 60s, yeah. 60s is the... 
So it's um, Robert De Niro, James Woods. Um, uh, what the fuck's his name? Um, William Forsythe. William Forsythe. Right? I was going to say fucking Raising Arizona, dude. But yeah, William Forsythe. Um, are a gang of these, you know, street youths that kind of work for this other, like, older teenage, like, criminal um, running, like, small scams, kind of like a, I don't know, like, Oliver Twist type thing. Um, they're, like, rolling drunks and doing, like, minor, like, pickpocketing and stuff. Um, the child De Niro character meets the child Woods character. They become partners in crime. Um, the De Niro kid character ends up going to jail for stabbing, like, the older, um, whatever, like, Bugsy is his name. He's the, like, the, whatever, Artful Dodger, I guess, like, character of that group. Man, I never made the Oliver Twist connection before, but now I'm kind of pop. Um, so anyway. I I hadn't either, but yeah, you're right. It's, um, De Niro, like, De Niro's character goes to jail. He gets out of jail when they're adults, I guess, at that point, like 30, 1930s. So they were probably. Yeah, I think he says he's gone for like close to 12, 12 years, maybe. 12 years, yeah. It's like, yeah. It's, it's, it's 1918 when he stabs the guy to death, and then 1930 when he gets out of jail. Right. Um, and then it just follows like the various plot lines, um, including De Niro being labeled as a, a stool pigeon and a you know, marked for death and then coming back later, you know, as a, an old man, um, white haired hero and kind of like learning the truth about what happened with this group of friends and sort of the betrayal by, um, one of the members of their group that's, you know, ends up still being alive. Um, it's, it's pretty complex plot and pretty, um, I think for a movie that has a fractured timeline, I think does a really good job of establishing what's happening. And builds this mystery pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a huge fan of like jumping in time. I mean, I think when movies do it really well, like say with like Pulp Fiction, like it really works. Um, when movies fail at it, I'm trying to think of a good example of a movie that fails at like a like a non-linear approach to time. Um, maybe like Fire Walk with Me or something. I guess you know, like something that is still a good movie but doesn't necessarily work quite as well because whatever um but once upon a, once upon a time in america works very well with it and probably because it gives so much time to every storyline because this motherfucking movie is four hours long and mm-hmm. it feels like it's four hours long even though you're entertained the whole time <laughs> um i'll be honest like one of the things that really bothered me watching this movie and it this is not a fair criticism this is just like personal is I cannot stand watching Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro anymore in gangster movies. I think Mm. like I've gotten, I'm so tired of them in those roles. And especially because both of them have done those roles in comedic ways that have like kind of undercut the seriousness of the role. And they've done them too much that like when I watch it, it's hard to divest myself of them in those as those characters. You know what I mean? There's like so much weight. And De Niro did two of the best movies of the seventies, you know, as a, as a mobster. Right. You know, and this and Godfather too. And so it's really, I don't know, but really great performances. Um, I think 
Tuesday Weld is great. James Woods is fantastic. Elizabeth mm-hmm. McGovern is really good. Um, De Niro does an amazing job in this movie. Like he's he's fantastic in it. Like this is this, this is another reason why it's it's so hard to watch him today sometimes because like yeah. He's just, I mean, maybe it's age or whatever, but he's just lost like the small thing that made him like so powerful. It's the, um, the, this and Heat are my actually two favorite De Niro performances, and this is definitely my favorite James Wood performance. Man, that's a that's that's a bold claim for James Wood. I, I'll I'll give you that I would accept this as like an answer for De Niro. I don't know. Like I James James Woods is a man. Is it, what did you say? Did you say James Wood is a man? Man. Is the man. Oh, the man. Okay. Are you looking up James Woods now? Yeah, I'm trying to think what I think is better. Um It's hard. It it, it is a really good performance here. Maybe I'm just conflating how much I like Videodrome and Salvador and I think I think that scene when the it's not long after he's come back from prison and uh Woods is taken on Tuesday Weld as his girlfriend and he's sitting on the throne like the I guess it's like what he what did he claim it was like the Pope's chair or something like that. Right. Yep. Um and they're all sitting in there and it's like kind of tense and that performance by Woods in that scene, I, I, I can't accept it. Anything else I've seen of James Woods, I can't accept that the answer wouldn't be that movie. Like, if that's his best performance, because that he is absolutely he out is. of his world in that scene. Like, that's true. Yeah. So let me ask you this question. Because um, mm-hmm. I don't want to go too much into, like, the spoiler aspect of this movie, because I, <laughs> I think it's important to be able right. to... I agree. To watch it in full and like really appreciate, you know, I, th- this is one of those movies where the first time I saw it, I was completely surprised by the turn of events that happened like about three quarters of the way through. Yep. I think that says enough without saying anything mm-hmm. where I was like, oh shit. Yep. Like I was not expecting what right. happened in this movie. And I think that Leone does an amazing job of like, building you to that point where it is like a natural surprise without this like ridiculous foreshadowing to it or whatever. I, I, like, go ahead. And, and I, and the annoyance, uh, let me ask you this question real quick. Um, so the, this movie, one of the more infamous things about this movie is the beginning of it um, where he's in an opium den and right. the phone, there's a phone that's ringing. And it rings for how many minutes do you think it rings for? 14, 12. It's a long time. Yeah, I think yeah, it's at least 10. Um, through, did, it, did, it, it, did it's you through have, like four scenes. Did you, did you make it this time or did you mute it? No, I listened to it. Yeah, it doesn't bother me. No, I, I had to mute it. Um, <clears throat> but I, I made it through one time. I've seen this movie four times, I think, in my life. Um, maybe five. And um, I there's only one time I didn't mute it, uh, which is the first time. Um, but it's like I tried to make it this time to see if I can make it. Cause, but repetitive noises of any kind, if it's the exact same noise over and over, I can't stand. So like alarms, I can't stand. Um, yeah. A dog barking, if it's the same exact bark every time, drives me nuts. Um, 
like it's just even if there's a little variation it's fine but it's like you know it's like a bird chirping if it's the exact same chirp the exact same pace like it's just it drives me nuts but um so yeah the phone ringing but that phone ringing as annoying as it can be for at least me it's like all that ties into like in some ways it's like into that revelation you're talking about in oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. three of the way through like oh it's really it's brilliantly done like right. I, it's, yeah um so anyway so it's it's a great movie it's worth watching um to me again like i think the length is just a little prohibitive um especially today like four hours is a long time to invest in a movie for me um but i genuinely enjoyed it i watched it again this time all in one sitting um and just really you know really appreciated all the performances that I really appreciate the artistry of the city itself and how the city is a living thing Mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel like a backlot like even though probably a lot of that stuff is backlot like it never feels like that it feels like lived in and earned and just I don't know and so I actually kind of when I was watching this movie I was wondering if your question would be um like how is this Americana Um, and I think that this is the perfect juxtaposition to something like Radio Days or even, um, uh, American Graffiti, you know, like this is the side and obviously stylized because these are gangsters, but it was based on a, you know, a true story. Um, I don't know, just really. I think it's I think it still is a loving enough look at like that time period, even though these people are involved in underhanded and seedy things, you know, and they're criminals, like there still is some love given to like the look and the style and just the feel of that time period. And I just I don't know. I mean and it's it's a brilliant movie. It's one of um I think one of the most important movies of the nineteen eighties and one of the best movies in a really in my opinion, underrated director. I don't think that Leone gets enough credit, and he only did like seven or eight movies total, so maybe that's why. But um, just a guy that really like like created an entire genre, you know, and influenced so many people in terms of like filmmaking techniques and like thematically, and um, I don't know, just it's a great movie. And I know you love this movie a little more than me. Um, again, like in my list of like best leone movies this is not like in the top three which probably sounds like sacrilege but i just love the westerns like so much more um but still like a great movie and definitely like an important movie for anybody to watch that cares about um you know like film and film history and yeah yeah. i i have a i guess maybe special place in my heart this is my grandfather's favorite movie um and um like morbidly he um uh he's had a cd like in a lockbox for like years of the uh soundtrack to this movie because that's what he once played at his funeral uh, or as i guess it is viewing um and um so like i'll have to like i guess like you know make sure that's like up to, you know because i'm sure they're not gonna you know use a cd like their technology's advanced since he had me burn a copy of it but um uh but yeah so he he loves this movie and the soundtrack um particularly but um 
So I've watched yeah. this a lot with him. I've watched it, I think, three times with him specifically. Um, and uh, so, so, so there's a little bit of, um, you know, subjectivity that like goes into how much I love this sure. movie. But I, but I, I watching it again, and I actually, for someone who can't watch 45 minutes of a movie without um, getting up and moving around, like I watch this in two sittings in very close proximity to each other. Um, because I still, every time I watch it, even though I would say the first hour watching it again can be a little slow, maybe, um, as it builds. Agreed. Um, I, I, I was, I'm still just as captivated by the just filmmaking process and the way that the story is layered. Um, and I think I noticed a lot more this time about how that, how the framing of him as an old man coming back is used to be able to kind of tell that story and how brilliant that framing is. Um, uh, and I appreciate that. I think a lot more than I had previous times using that as a frame. And I really appreciate the New Year's performance much more this time in the differences I saw of the young noodles versus the old noodles. Um, sure. It's the same man, but you can feel, and De Niro is like, what, like in his like thirties at this point, maybe like, like yes. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's like, and it's like De Niro has a, like playing the old noodles has a, like somehow is good enough to like portray like this 60 something, I guess, you know, is that right? 70 year old man um, with this air of kind of resignation and wisdom um, as this old man that is, I mean, obviously earned through the character, but is, but it, it's amazing to watch De Niro do that um, and switch between those two different performances um, where it's kind of like he feels like um, someone who is volatile um, when he's young and is like kind of, you know, uh, he's selfish, but it's like not, yeah, I mean, no, he's selfish. Um, and, but it's like, he feels like someone who's grown and become wiser um, as an old man. And the fact that like, he can still be exactly the same voice, exactly the same mannerisms, but uh, wiser and display that on the screen is I think a really amazing thing to watch. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is a really good, like I, I think the coming of age aspect of this movie is obviously you see this a lot and I think in a lot of crime movies when it deals with kids when they're young like this kind of like penny penny ante shit that like where they start doing crime and then rise up but I think this is done I think those child actors are really good especially the ones that play Max and Noodles um I think they play really well off each other I think the young girl that um uh uh no shit Elizabeth McGovern's character, like the one yeah. the girl that plays her when she's young, I think is um is pretty good too in her scenes with yeah. noodles. Agreed. Um, but I think this I I I just think like it oh, creates it's, a it's Jennifer, it's Jennifer Connelly that plays her in the Oh right, right. Yeah. yeah Jennifer, yep. Yep, yeah. you're right. Um I, I was I thought I was confusing like the other girl, but um yeah, yeah. you're right. So yeah, I, I think that um the performances are really good. I think you're right. I think it's like the story, despite being as long as it is, by the time you get to that twist, you don't see it coming necessarily. Even though, like, once you, like, realize what it is, it's like, you're like, oh, right. <laughs> um, you know, because it's all based off of one assumption. You know, I mean, um, it's, it's based off of one assumption. You have no reason not, not to just assume that. And um, 
and and I and I think it's brilliant that like you know, uh, and I think that's credit to uh, him making you identify to some degree with the character of Noodles and take on his perspective throughout the movie. Um, yeah. Is that you just go along with the assumption? And uh, so yeah, I, I think this is a brilliant movie. I think if if anybody hasn't seen it, like I know it's a long movie, it's a long time to invest, but um, I definitely think it's something to watch um, yep. uh, at least once in your life. So, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Move it along, Gasberry. <laughs> <sighs> okay, so number one on your list is. The Last Picture Show from 1971, uh, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. It stars Timothy Bottoms, Jeff Bridges, Cloris Leachman, Sybil Shepard, Ben Johnson. It has a 100% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 90% from audiences. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why it's number one? Uh, so this is kind of the... Um... Number one after my compelling case that I just made for Once Upon a Time in America, I should say. Right. Too bad it's not your list. Um, <laughs> this is the dark mirror of American graffiti, in my opinion. Um, yeah. Again, it's a story about a group of friends. Um, this group of friends lives in um, a town in Texas. I can't remember what the name of the town is. They Somewhere in Texas. Um, near the Mexican border, um, well, near enough where they can, like, drive to it, <laughs> um, follows Sonny and Dwayne, that's the Timothy Bonham Shepherds characters, um, who are best friends, um, high school football players, really popular among the town, even though their team is, uh, talked about numerous times as being, like, lackluster and can't win games, um, sort of follows like their love lives and like what they intend to do after high school's over and just sort of the, I don't know, kind of like creeping on we and hopelessness of like a small town when you don't have any money, basically. Um, a lot of like different subjects are crossed, like classism and like the treatment of like gender roles in society and homosexuality homosexuality and like hiding it and um you know the idea that really like one of the only ways to escape like being impoverished in a small town is the military you know which is something that especially at that time like pre-korean war would have been like a big option for a lot of like young men um and just done in this like inimitable style that Bogdanovich has where things feel like dirty and small but also expansive and beautiful like he can move you between you know the scenes like inside the pool hall especially um they just feel like small and filthy and you know there is like the real like strong feeling I think in the movie of kind of like hopelessness but then also you have these you know expansive shots of like like prairies and like the river and you know there's really great relationships built between the characters i think that's a great job of establishing very credible and believable backstories to a large group of characters just through dialogue and circumstance um where you feel like you know you know um you know you feel like you know 
Sonny and you feel like you know Dwayne and like JC, they, you know, it's, it's not like there's a lot of exposition. It's just through like dialogue and through what characters say about each other. Um, amazing performance. Like Ben Johnson as Sam, um, Sybil Shepard in her first film role is fantastic as JC. Um, I think bottom and bridges are both really great in it. I mean, there's like no real bad performances. I mean, it doesn't shy away from showing like a darker side of, you know, what a lot of people consider like the golden era, quote unquote, of like American life. So, um, beautifully shot, amazing soundtrack, you know, like, so one of the funny things about this movie is that this, it was unavailable on any kind of home media forever. Like I didn't see this movie until 92, maybe or 93. And I know they're probably going to sound like whatever, but, for being like such a seminal like American movie of the seventies, like it's it's weird that you wouldn't have it available, but there was a lot of like rights issues with the soundtrack to it. Um because he uses so much like popular radio music just as not even like as a soundtrack, it's just like background almost like ambient noise, you know, to like scenes and whatnot. Um but yeah, just an amazing movie. Like, really fantastic performance. It's one of my favorite movies from my teenage years, and I think it still holds up, and maybe I even liked it a little more this time. Oh, and so, so many, like, actors that are young in this movie that, like, kind of, like, Randy Quaid and mm-hmm. Ellen Burstyn and Cloris Leachman, not that they play, like, whatever, like, young people, but they're not, like, old in this movie, and they went on to have, like, distinguished careers. And especially Shepard, who was just, in my opinion, like so fantastic in this movie. So, yeah, I thought, yeah, I think Timothy Bottoms, um, like, blows this thing out of the water. Like, um, yeah, he's he's ridiculously good in it. Um, yeah, I think I drunkenly, like, two or three weeks ago, like, uh, told you that, um, like, whatever, I got this movie, I don't need to watch it ever again. <laughs> Um, I think I said that one night. Um, I need to watch it again because I uh, I appreciate it more, even though I really liked it at the time, and I've always liked this movie. Um, I appreciated it more for the nuances this time, and I think you made the arguments like you always because I think I've seen it twice before this. Um, and I think you made the you made the movie uh, the statement that's like you should watch movies you really like, you know, um, you know, a lot of times, you know. Um, and I said, well, maybe that says what I say to think about this movie. But this movie is fantastic, and I, I get why you put it number one. Um, is that it's 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 pretty much flawless in a lot of ways. Um, also, one of the most heartbreaking endings. Yeah. Like, I mean that the last like twenty minutes of this movie are just sad. I guess. I yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Very sad, and not, not even twenty. Like the last like forty minutes of this movie are just like increasingly sad. Well, it's once the what's the what's uh, what's his name Ben Johnson's character. Um, yeah, Tim Lyon, right? Once he dies, yeah, it's like everything goes to goes to shit. Um, but yeah, no, uh, this is a this is a nearly flawless f- film from Bogdanovich. Um, yeah. You accused me of a couple weeks also of saying like you don't like Bob Conifich. It's like I I don't know where that comes from, but um I um 
I don't have anything against Bogdanovich other than I think he's like a Orson Welles fanboy who um, goes too far in that regard. But um, <clears throat> but that's about it. Um, so no, I was actually saving the question until this movie. That's the one that you like kind of preemptively asked or like, you know, assumed I was going to ask for Once Upon a Time in America is because once you made the top two movies, the darker ones, um, that's what I found interesting. Yeah. I mean, honestly, because I can't help myself ever by always putting the movies, even though we have like a theme to the list, it's always going to be the movies that I like the best, you know, that end up like, unless there really is like a stretch, you know what I mean? But in this movie, I think that, the idea of like a 20, 25 cent cheeseburger, you know what I mean? Or like the 35 cent um, picture show with the popcorn and whatever that it's like the fifth time they've shown whatever McClintock or whatever the fuck they're watching in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think that's Americana. Like the idea of like the guy going into the military to try and make something of himself because he can't stay stuck in the sound. Like, whereas, I mean, look at like, um, Jeff Bridges and Civil uh, um, Shepard's characters, really very similar to Ron Howard and um, I can't remember who plays his girlfriend in that movie. Cindy Williams. Yeah. yeah, Cindy Williams. Like those characters. You know what I mean? Like there's a great deal of similarity thematically between those two. Right. You know, really popular guy, Ron Howard, class president, um, Jeff Bridges, quarterback of the football team you know, most beautiful girl, like most popular girl mm-hmm. in the school. And then can they stay together? Will they make it? But like, whereas American graffiti is a more polished or like rose colored look at that situation. Like, I think that what happens in, you know, last picture show is a much more realistic portrayal. Yeah. And I think this is important of a way to look at Americana. Cause I think that's the, to me, like when I was thinking about, because I've, I've been thinking about this, you know, what we were going to talk about tonight in these movies a lot this week, mostly because I watched three of them this week, so it's been on my mind anyway. But, um, you know, I thought like that's one of the dangers of Americana is kind of like glossing over a lot of the problems that were inherent during this time that didn't necessarily affect a lot of these directors. And I think that Bogdanovich, despite the fact that he doesn't really take on anything beyond like, what it means to be poor, you know, like there's no real like racial issues or anything. And definitely like, those are things that movies that kind of embrace that idea of Americana sort of like reject or turn away from. Um, but I think that it's, you know, I think that, you know, talking about like the idea of like being a closeted homosexual and what does that mean in like Texas in the 1950s, you know, and, right what does it mean to be in like a loveless marriage or what does it mean to be, you know, this woman who, cause the Ellen Burstyn, um, or not Ellen Burstyn, but, uh, fuck, what is her name? Um, Leachman. No, Ellen Burstyn. I'm thinking of the right. The, the lady, the, she, she plays JC's mom. Um, oh. this woman who's sexually liberated and like openly cheats on her husband and, like very you know non-traditional like way of looking at things for the 1950s and even in the 1970s but like i think that that's why it's brilliant 
that Bogdanovich films this movie in black and white. Like, he's almost tricking you into thinking that you're watching something from the 50s. Mm -hmm. but with this very modernistic, like, 70s mindset to it. And based on his own life experiences, too, you know. So, like, there's a lot of, like, truisms, I think, to what the characters think and feel and how they act. And anyway. It's That's really, fun. it's really funny. I didn't realize that was Ellen Burst until you just said it. I had oh, no yeah. idea. Um, uh, it's funny. But, yeah, very, very bold to have that be, like, a point. And giving her daughter, like, advice of, you know, this is how you lose your virginity or yeah. it's not that big of a deal, you know. And when you mostly think about, like, people from that age talking about, like, the sanctity of marriage and mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just, it's it's an amazing movie. And it's one of my, one of my favorite movies of the 70s that I don't think I think about enough. And unfortunately followed up by kind of a lackluster sequel um, in 1990. Yeah, I'd never <laughs> seen that. Um... So you see, what do, what do you think of that? I've there's a director's cut to it, and I don't know which one of those I've seen, but I know that the movie I saw, I've only seen it once, and I wasn't too impressed. I mm -hmm. thought it was a little too fractured in relation to like, I mean, this movie juggles like multiple plot lines, but it feels like very like intimate and small. And in that movie, you know, it's I don't want to get too much into like talking about it, but. There's a lot of things that are a lot less believable to me in that movie mm -hmm. than the last picture show. Yeah. And it feels almost like it feels like like Harry Potter fanfic feels when you read it. You know what I mean? Like nothing I'm reading. Re 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 reading the synopsis of it, I understand exactly what you mean of what happens in it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like somebody that kind of understands like what makes these characters and this movie great, but then can't help themselves but be like, oh, but then all this stuff happens and here's all this backstory that I've always thought would happen in my head. And right. I don't know. Like just yeah. let it go, man. But I mean, Bogdanovich apparently got effed over by the studios when he made it. So I actually was thinking about renting it again and watching it just to see if it's better than what I remember. And right. so we'll see. I had to watch like all like three of these movies this week. And one of those was once upon a time in America. So right. I don't have time to do anything else. Yeah. So, um, Okay, yeah. No, I um no, I thought it was I, I, I the the only thing I'll think add is I think that it creates one of the best kind of moods for an uh, a place and a time than may that maybe I've ever seen in my life. Right. I agree with it, that. It makes you feel a certain it actually makes you feel a certain way, like and I and I think guess is the is the feeling that he wants you to feel like in terms of like what those people feel to some degree. Like I don't know how to explain it, but I mean, it's like he actually establishes a mood, which I think is a difficult thing to do um, in a film. A lot of times. Um, oh sure. I mean, <laughs> when you have your when your opening action is driving down a street like this barren street with the like the dust bowl winds like blowing over it. Mm -hmm. and, the one person out there just like sweeping you right. know like pointlessly i mean there's that fallout tv series that's coming out um next year from hbo or prime or whoever's doing it mm -hmm. like to me the look of this movie is what that tv series needs to like try to whatever like emulate you know what i mean because that's that's what it feels like you know, yeah. desolate, dirty, hopeless, just 
these empty, like, vagabond people who have sort of been left behind by society or, like, time or whatever, like, just trying to get by, like, as they're, like, everything kind of moves past them in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't know. There's just a lot of, like, and to make it beautiful at the same time is, yeah. is amazing. So, I don't know. Agreed. So, two quick things. One, did you real? well, I'm, I'm sure you didn't do this on purpose. I, mean, I don't think you did. Um, you answered me too quickly last year with this list. Um, do you realize you hit every single decade? Like, pretty much? So I realized it today when okay. I was watching American Graffiti. Right. And 20, I thought, 20, 20s and 30s for Once Upon a Time in America. 40s for Radio Days. 1951 for Last Picture Show. Early 60s for American Graffiti. And mid-70s for Slums of Bearful Hills. Which yeah, is so very impressive. I was hoping that, like, I could work up the nerve to pretend like I did that on purpose. But <laughs> right. it, it just happened. Right. But um, I mean, like, the more I thought about it, when I was again, when I was trying to think about it, like I was trying to think of movies that kind of fit my idea of that. So yeah, fucked up if I would have like replaced any of them. So I guess it was good that I didn't like shove grease in there or whatever. So the the, the last thing I want to go back to this point about those top two movies. Um, do you think that we, because of our age, and this just uh, might be wrong, but I'm wondering if because of our age being kind of like Xers that we grew up in the kind of Sam Shepard, buried child, uh, true West kind of David Lynch, um, blue velvet, like kind of, uh, distrust suspicion of baby boom nostalgia to where it's like, movies like um that look like what bogdanovich is doing it's very kind of sam shepherd-esque to me um even though there's not the violence involved in it as much um like this kind of it wasn't as good as you thought it was do you think us growing up with like people that were doing that making those kind of criticisms about nostalgia and about um the good old days do you think that leads to you to liking movies more that have that sentiment to it huh nah, maybe um i don't know if i have the answer for myself i was just wondering i think i think that for the majority of my childhood i grew up believing the myth of american graffiti and radio days you know what i mean that like things were better and i think the older i got the more i realized that that was probably not true and now is like and a like a middle middle age adult like i kind of know that that's not true right so right what are you I making mean, right it's like to the point now it's like what are you making great again right I, so it's 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 funny because so i've i've known all three of these movies since i was in my early 20s we'll say because you know I saw Slums of Beverly Hills roughly when it came out. So we'll say that, like, every one of these movies I've known pretty well since, like, 1998. If you would have asked me to rank them then, Radio Days would have probably been number one. And then it probably would have still gone in the same order after that. Um, and I think the only reason why I can't like Radio, radio Days as much is mostly, number one, I think because now I kind of realize that it doesn't quite hold up as like a film, like a narrative, but also because of like, you know, the fucking, um, 
Woody Allen shit. But beyond that, like, I don't know. Like, I think I'm still okay with, like, nostalgia. I think I'm just better at recognizing the inherent hypocrisy of it. And I just think that Last Picture Show and Once Upon a Time in America are just the best movies, like, by far on the list. I guess maybe to clarify, even then, it's like, okay, that's not the question I was asking you, right? Do you think that they're the best movies on the list because it's not only from their filmmaking, filmmaking, like kind of like attributes, but do you think it's because they're their truest in your mind, they're the truest expressions? They're, um, they're more honest. Right. And I think that's important. I mean, I think that like, I think that dishonest filmmaking, even if it's not intentional is always going to be less effective than something that isn't afraid to look at itself. You know what I mean? Right. And I think that Bogdanovich, especially in 71 or whenever he filmed Last Picture Show, was the guy that was very willing to take a hard look at some uncomfortable truths about America and its recent history right. um, and his own childhood, you know, and like show things that maybe people weren't necessarily comfortable or willing to talk about. But that's what makes the 70s so great. And I know that Once Upon a Time in America is, what, 84, I think? Sure. But I mean, that's the culmination of this man who made most of his movies in the 60s and 70s career. And he was trying to get it made in 1969, so... Right. Like, they have been trying for decades to make right. this movie. Yeah. Um, and they... I don't know. I mean, to me, like, gangster movies... I, th- I think that's why Last Picture Show, to me, has to be number one, just because, like, it's a lot less uncomfortable to watch criminals do bad things because you can always it's like watching a slasher movie and you know like well it's not real you know what i mean like even though like it's based on real things you're not really involved with the criminal element like it's not uncomfortable to think about somebody committing crime because you can distance yourself morally from that sure but it's really difficult to distance yourself morally from you know sunny having Mm -hmm. an affair with like a woman that's more than twice his age Sure. Or um, the Bridges character, uh, I've forgotten his Dwayne, mm-hmm. like, you know, blinding his friend because he drunkenly is lashing out because, you know, he didn't get the girl that he wanted and he's not living the life that he wanted to live. <laughs> yeah, right. Because he could, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, talk about like, yeah, like toxic masculinity, like lashing right. out because you couldn't get it up, you know? Like, like you, yeah. you, you knew that, like, like, I knew that it was the Ellen Burstyn character the first time I saw it when Sam is there talking about, like, skinny dipping with this beautiful, like, younger married woman. I was like, it's got to be her that he's talking about. But, like, finding it out is just, like, like such a beautiful moment. There's so much, like, honesty and, you know, truth and Ellen Burstyn, like, talking about her love for this older man that now he's gone and she can't even imagine, like, loving anybody else. Like, all that stuff is just, I don't know. I again I think that like a movie that's willing to like look at itself and look at society and not pull punches is always going to be more impactful and more important oh, than yeah because it's incred- it's incredibly sad and very true <laughs> and 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 in all of that there's a certain weird type of beauty to it right I mean like what's the scariest quote unquote scariest thing that happens in American graffiti like a couple of toughs, you know, steal a car and then 
there's this like fake ass gang initiation thing happened. I mean, like none of that stuff, you know, like, and look, I love that movie and I think that movie's great, but it's definitely like a, a huckster's look at, you know, it's a, I eyes half shut. Look at like life basically. So, right. Because nobody's pregnant, you know, like that. It, it's just, yeah. I don't know why I chose that thing, but like, there's no like, there's. I'm I'm starting to wonder right now too, Frank. Yeah. Why he chose that thing? Well, wanted, maybe we'll have to talk active. off air about that. There's a lot of sexually active teens in that movie, and right, they're not using protection or anything. So it's like. Where's the realism there? Like, there's no consequence to what any of these people are doing. And it's really kind of just... And again, I know that Lucas isn't trying to make some kind of, like, real statement. He's just, like, it's a love letter to his childhood. But at the same time, it's, like, a dis- it's somewhat disingenuous, you know? Like, I don't know. Agreed. And there's yeah, not I... a single person of color in that movie, except for the one gang member. And those guys are kind of portrayed almost as, like, a joke the pharaohs or whatever like they're not even like bad guys they're just like phony toughs or whatever you know so i don't know right. but anyway um okay so yeah um good stuff I, I i enjoyed the list um and i enjoyed hearing you talk about all those um yeah it was a fun list to watch and i'm yeah. actually what's our what's our next week Okay, so in the month of August uh next week uh will be the first ever next 5 for uh, the the next five on your list of 1970s sci-fi movies um it's good uh, yeah and then the week after that we'll be doing the top five high society movies which has also a number of really great movies on that list um and then we will be finishing off the month with um the top five post-apocalyptic hidden gems um and that'll be the end of August. Uh, so yeah, so we have uh, I think a good variety um, overall. Yeah, um, I'm uh, looking forward. I'm really the the next three lists I really like a lot. Like I had a lot of fun like coming up with them, and I really enjoyed watching the movies off of them. So I'm super excited to talk about them. Yeah, I'm 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 through the sci-fi. I'm all but one through the high society um and i'm one into the post-apocalyptic because i made frank give them to me early because i got to prepare for classes like here soon so i had to like time everything out but um so i'm like through those lists mostly already and yeah i'm good stuff in all of them yep absolutely i'm excited for it i actually kind of thought i'd have more time but now i find that i have these other things i have to do so Mm. i'm having to like squeeze i'd like my movie watching has been down to probably about 10 movies a week yeah Yeah, that's kind of i i knew my time was going to be limited that's why i asked you to kind of give them to me ahead of time just so i can kind of like time things out a little bit better um which has helped a lot and and last week i was able to get ahead a little bit um for when i'm not gonna be able to watch movies probably next week that much so my kid is laughing at me in i guess like incredulous disdain because i said i'm only watching 10 movies a week but that is like a pretty slow. Like no, pretty I, th- I, th- I thought it was. I thought it was going to be because you said you have like all these other things to do now, and I was. I going do. To, and I was going to tell you, like you know, how does it? I was going to ask you how it felt because that's what you used to do to me all the time. 
well, I don't know. Like I still, I've always had like a job, so it, that's never changed. And I got to do other stuff for other people. <laughs> so, so did I. I always had a job doing Frank. <laughs> Yeah. Still, I want nothing canceled. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines to use. Again. I know. I know it is. I've heard it many times. <clears throat> two, two, two arrested development jokes in, a, in one, one podcast. So. Yeah. It probably still isn't even a record. <clears throat> probably not. Okay, so yeah, so that's our episodes coming up for the month of August. Um, and any final thoughts, Frank? No, just that it was an enjoyable list, and um, I think if people have the chance, you should you know try and watch a few of these movies, and I think they're all pretty worthwhile. So yep, okay, all right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. Have a good night. Yep. Have a good night.